Hey, it's Arrow, and this is PodFest, episode number 23. Three back-to-back conversations with real people we know through entertainment, politics, science, sports, medical, or just cooking in the kitchen. They're played back-to-back. The lyrics we share in this everyday world makes this a great place to retell their story. PodFest number 23 features one of many conversations I've had with the brilliantly talented comedian Craig Shoemaker. Then we're going to jump into a solid once-in-a-lifetime moment in music history with Noel and Dolores from the Cranberries. And we'll wrap things up with real talk about Tiger Woods from sports writer Kurt Sampson. This is PodFest. Ladies and gentlemen, his father left when he was one day old. His mother belly danced at his high school graduation party. His grandmother smokes and grows reefer. He comes from three generations of alcoholics. <laughs> In high school, he was five foot one, 92 pounds, and a premature ejaculator. <laughs> He's been married, divorced, married, divorced, and married again. It's Craig Shoemaker. Your podcasting to your onstage performance to you being on parks and recreation, you, you are just an endless machine. Yeah, I'd like to end that machine. <laughs> I've, been, I've been at it since high since I've been doing this professionally since... High school, Ava Tamini's backyard, wow. where people passed a hat around and wanted to send me to the gong show. <laughs> <laughs> that's what the, yeah, I, I guess instead of gonging me, I said, let's get him out of here, send him to Los Angeles. So that's, that's how I started was um, in high school, making people laugh. But you, you have taken comedy to, you have taken it to such a level to where you're like that leader. You, you are that guy that people go, that's who I want to be. Really? Yeah. I was not aware of that. I just thought of a book title this morning, you know, 40 years and still not famous. <laughs> That's so funny. So there goes my book idea. If you think I'm really a leader, people go, what do you mean he's not famous? But yeah, I've had a strange, a strange career. I've had some, uh, some strange goals have also been achieved that were unique to me when, when I was a kid. I would watch uh, Hollywood Squares with my mom and, you know, I didn't have a dad and you know, I think I told you the story that she was in love with Paul Lynn. So I wrote him a letter. I said, you should meet my mother. And then you'll unconfirm as a bachelor. You know, I tried to fix her up with Paul. Paul Lynn, oh my God. <laughs> Don't think he was going to write me back. <laughs> and I put her photo in there. I should have put my photo apparently. But uh, yeah, but I, my dream was to be the first father and son team on Hollywood Squares. Wow. Like, you know, I'd like Craig and Paul Lynn for the win. Yeah. <laughs> Take it, son. It's a sports question. <laughs> oh, my God. This one's yours, Dad. It's about ascots. Uh, so my goal was that, and then I ended up on Hollywood Squares. Kind of strange, but 75 episodes, and Whoopi would let me go into the center square and, like, visit, wow. you know, what it would have been like to be that center square with Paul Lynn being my father. Do you walk <laughs> on a set like that and look around, and it'd be, it'd be like walking into a radio uh, museum, and there's Casey Kasem, there's Wolfman Jack. Do you walk into a game show set and go there was a lot of things that have taken place before I got here well yeah I do I have like there's historical significance for me and I studied television growing up and really? you know yeah I really I, I majored in radio and television film at Temple University and I just really honor the medium, and yet it doesn't honor itself anymore. I mean, when you see the shows like Honey Boo Boo, yeah. I didn't even know what the show was. I thought it was about a husband who made a mistake. <laughs> it was a, a honey made a boo boo. I tuned in to the show, and it turns out it might have been oh, yeah. uh, some sort of a mistake. But uh, anyway, I uh, I just you know I feel bad for my kids to have to watch this crap you know like we had we had carol burnett and all in the family and mary tyler moore and mash and this is all talent i swear my favorite actor was jimmy stewart 
If he was alive today, they'd put him on jackass. You know? <laughs> well, 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 Johnny Knoxville, you, you made me, you made me staple my my scrotum to my thigh. You're you're, you're warped and frustrated. Oh, you 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 made me. I can hardly walk. <laughs> I mean, you. I mean, imagine the great actors of yesteryear, and it's such a shame, you know. Like, these aren't reality shows. Either. There's nothing real about them. The Bachelor, they pick the best-looking guys on the planet. Who can, yet, re- who can relate to this? You know what? They need a regular guy. They need Swamp Bachelor. I'd watch that one. You know, see this guy. Who's your crow, Daddy? You know what I mean? But you, I, you would do Naked and Afraid, though. I. I thought about that. You know, if they put me in a tropical environment, I'd be all right. Because, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I don't want cold. Yeah. You know, even though they, they pixelate, you know, the Love Master's got a reputation. Yeah. And, and <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of pixels here, baby. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, if, I wouldn't want a cold environment, you know, when the, when the, the Dartos and Cream Master glands are at work, you know, and you get that, you know, button on a fur coat look that's so attractive. So I, I, yeah, I would, I don't, I don't know what reality show. I was thinking about that now that I'm kind of giving up touring. Why are you, why are you stopping? I mean, this is the only time I get to see you. Yeah. Well, I'm on a book tour too. I, you can see me on my book tour. Yeah. I got a book. You're going to come sit in the, see, I've been on the Barnes and Noble tour. That's fun. Yeah. But do you stay, are you going to, this is kind of a weird question, but are you the type of person that's going to stay there and talk to everyone? Or are you going to stick to a time schedule? I do. I talk to everyone. Yeah. It's, it's with the bane of my existence. That's what I've always loved about you. Yeah. My, my, uh, my family's like, you know, it's, it's so bad. Plus I'm on social network talking to people. And they they can't believe that it's actually me. They always think it's like an assistant. I go, oh, no, this is me. My assistant's not coming up with jokes and personal (laughs) anecdotes and things like that. I mean, it's so bad with the social network. One time I'm looking on there. And it's it says come to dinner and it's from my son. <laughs> Hashtag we're waiting for you. Uh, <laughs> What's your son doing with his writing? Is he is he uh, is he still writing a little few things here and there for you? Yeah, he's a funny dude. He's uh, all my kids are very funny. Yeah, now I have a new one, a daughter. She's not Aww. funny yet. She just smiles a lot, which is really cool. And that's also an inspiration for getting off the road. Yeah, yeah, the road is very uh, draining. On you know, I, I couldn't wait to be a dad. That was a big goal for me because I didn't have one. So I couldn't wait to be called daddy. And the very first word my oldest son ever called me when he was one, he looks at me and I go, oh, he's going to speak. And he calls me airport. (laughs) Airport. (laughs) Did you just call me airport? (laughs) Something needs to change here, but it it hasn't, you know, so his whole life. He's 16 now, but... uh, yeah, I'm, I'm one, I want to be around and coach more Little League, even for the material. I coach, by the way, and I go out of my mind. Nine-year-olds in football and four of the kids have inhalers. It's like, hold time out. <laughs> and this other kid's like jealous. He goes, I want an inhaler. I go, he's got asthma. They have asthma. He's like, but I want asthma. That's right. That's so true. <laughs> so they are now. With ADD. What's this attention deficit disorder? You were a kid once. Were you paying attention? No, I'd get the hit upside the head, man. It, there was no paying attention. You walk up to your parents. I hear every single word you say. I am focused. As a matter of fact, I have an attention surplus. What would you like me to do right now? Rewire the house? No! We're, it was just called hyperactive. I was so hyper. I used to sleepwalk and wet my sister's bed. And, and nobody gave me drugs for it. They just turned me around. There, go pee in your own bed. So raising kids in this generation is definitely giving me a lot of material, but uh, I would like to uh, tour a lot less with that material and find other outlets 
outlets. Does that mean uh, a step away from Los Angeles and trying to get back into real America? No, no. So, I live in an area that people think that Los Angeles is this like you know big amoeba of Hollywood, but I live outside. That you hear these stars. I'm going to Montana. I live in Wyoming. Yeah. Now I live in Wyoming, but it's 40 minutes outside the city. Next going, to a going lake, like Oxnard and stuff. Yes, or? exactly. Okay, exactly. Okay. Yeah, I live north, and uh, it's wonderful. I, you know, I coach the teams and ride my kayak and hike. Really? Yeah, I have exactly the life that everyone else has. It's just that I can be there for auditions. You know who lives in Oxnard? Who's that? Billy Jack. Billy Jack. Oh, the Billy Jack. <laughs> yeah. Is that where I he went, lives? I went looking for him. Yeah, you, I did. That sounds a little stalky, Arrow. I, I, I'm afraid to even tell you the region that I live in. <laughs> I'll, I'll be looking out my home and go, is that Arrow? <laughs> with a no. microphone and headphones? I, I did an interview with him, and I said, man, I'm going to be out in L.A. No, uh, really? Said, Stop by. Wow. But, but man, when you get in Oxnard, it's like, you know, I'm just going to go to Santa Barbara. I'm, right. I'm just going to keep going. And yeah. because there's nothing in Oxnard. Gregory it's, Harrison lives there, a very good friend of mine. Really? Do you remember him, Trapper John? Yeah. yeah he's on Reckless now. Wow. A show called Reckless, actually filmed in the Carolinas. Uh, but uh, yeah, he's uh, he lives in Oxnard, too. Speaking of things being filmed in the Carolinas, we are quickly becoming really the Hollywood of the East Coast. Yeah, how you, about that? Do you see yourself coming this way to do these shows since it has I see myself if they ask me (laughs) are you kidding me yes I see myself is this some sort of a visual psychic thing you're saying visualize Craig it's the law of attraction tell yourself you would like to do a Hollywood movie in the Hollywood of the east say it Craig say it four times into the mirror I will be in Hollywood east I will be in Hollywood east is that what that is yes of course I would uh, absolutely do that I I love acting I think it's a, a really cool thing and, because uh, it gives you a chance to step away from Craig Shoemaker, or yeah. because and, and have other people write the material. But I, thought you I have hours and hours of material. Yeah, I of bet comedy you do. material. Hours and hours. I'm always I've, just stacks of. I've, I have it on paper, by the way. I go old school. Do you really? Oh, yeah. I mean, I always think about this as you know, with chargers, and you know, I'm so sick of. By the way, I, I want I want to like sue some of these companies that have different types of chargers. Yeah. How many chargers do you have? But by the way, I have a trio for sale. Do you remember a trio? <laughs> and I thought that was the trio or whatever it was. I thought that was the hippest phone ever. And now try to find find some complimentary charge for that thing, that charger. So that's on a stack of of a big pile now. But I, I go out of my mind with all this. So my papers don't need a charger. I have old notebooks from college. Wow. And that I has just, and got I, to be fascinating. And I write in there with hands handwriting and you know and I and if I I don't have spell autocorrect either <laughs> it says the wrong thing you know when you're, you're, you're trying to say oh, I'll, I'll come pick you up and it says I'll call peek you or whatever I mean it's you know I mean it doesn't it, it doesn't make any sense to me and it doesn't make us work on our minds right and here's, here's the thing is is our minds are so remember you memorize everyone's phone numbers I knew everyone's phone number I could t- I know I had really unique ways of doing that I thought it was really cool I used uh, numbers of Philadelphia Eagles and Flyers and Sixers, and I, I would use their numbers. So uh, I still remember like Dave Margolis or Artie Bucci. I still remember their numbers from when I was a kid <laughs> based on Philadelphia Eagles from the 70s. Right, right, right. You right. know, if it was 6688, uh, that was, you know, I mean, I, I, would, I would have, you know, it was Bill Bergie's number 66, and, I, wow. and uh, Gary Pettigrew was number 88, so I'd go, go Bergie Pettigrew, that's, his, that's their number. That's but a- now our brains are so filled with so much crap on social network 
So it, that takes away your brain cells. Yep. The useless stuff, your useful stuff has to leave. And everybody thinks we need to know everything about them. So now you're taking away, like, I had a guy come up. I know it's a nice custom, but he goes, hello, my name is Cade. I'll be your waiter. I go, do I have to memorize your name now? (laughs) Really? You just replaced my social security number. (laughs) Don't tell me the specials. I'll lose my address, my Gmail (laughs) password. Please, don't fill it up with anything else. Cade. I still now have to remember Cade. See, that's like going into Panera Bread now. You can just go right onto the app and order the food. I don't have to see anybody. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, you, you can do you can be in the car, order the food, and and then they'll just bring it right out to your table. You don't have to go to the counter. You don't have to do anything. Oh, I like it's that. Mind blowing. I don't know if I like that. I like to be angry if they <laughs> give me bad right. service. And I then thought that, it was two for that, one. That's yeah, part of my emotional roller coaster that I'm on. I you know <laughs> I, I I do like a human. Right. That's the other thing. I can't stand the automated stuff, you know, or, or I, I want to talk to somebody just with my little complainy voice and, you know, and or, or try to try to move them into a different direction to help me actually help me instead of you have to write it out now. You know, be you'd be great at or like the Taco Bell uh, two o'clock in the morning uh, boards outside because it always goes, hi, this is Craig. Welcome to Taco Bell. And then when you get up to the window, it's Brenda. What the hell happened to Craig, you know? I don't know about that. Yeah, with voiceover. I'm shocked that you've never gotten into voiceover work. You do a lot of fast food, don't you? <laughs> I earned my heart attack, mister, all right? Did you have a heart attack? Yeah. Oh, yeah, my five God. Five years ago. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's when you realize, you know, this thing called life can go anytime now. Yeah. So you kind of sit back a little bit and go, I'm going to get more comedy in my life. I'm with you on that. You know that. I've got a documentary we're doing about the healing powers of laughter. Really? Yeah, we're uh, going. We're taking seven people with various illnesses and disorders and things, and taking them through laughter programs. I developed these laughter programs. We don't even need jokes. You just make a choice to laugh. It's called a guided laughidation. Instead of meditating, you laughidate, and you add. And in your laughter, you add. You express out loud whatever your pain is, whatever your condition is, and you just throw it out there. Like, you just go, well, I'll show you a real quick one. <laughs> I have Crohn's disease. <laughs> it makes me have diarrhea at the worst times. <laughs> it's incurable. <laughs> so that's what we do. And we take people through these laughter programs. But in the movie, we're actually good. We've heard about it many times about laughter being the best medicine. But let's see it. So we'll ha- we'll monitor the results with doctors and you know other physicians and things. Uh, blood work, heart work. Uh, you know it oxygenates your blood. Uh, stress is relieved. We have stress tests and stuff. And so we'll see the results of what laughter does. We really need to integrate it into our system. And it's not right now. It's not the the negative is out there. It's it's so it's so much so. And the reason it is, by the way, is because who are the people with money? It's not, it ain't the comedy zone. (laughs) (laughs) It ain't the comedy zone. You know what I mean? (laughs) So it just there's there's you know or the or the improv chains or whatever it is. The the money is in corporations, right? Who create things like drugs? So they have all these drugs. They have to have the dealers have to have customers. So how do you create a customer? You got to create a customer, and the way they do it is they scare you. Yep. They scare you, and they put into your mind 
that you have these things. So now when you have an itch, wait a minute, I need something with that. Uh, I need Cialis or whatever all it is. And in the meantime, they do the side effects to cover their asses. And half of the side effects are how it could kill you. You know, I, I need I need better sleep, not a dirt nap. Thank you. You know, so but laughter is truly the cheapest, most wonderful way to make yourself well. But they're never going to say that on television because there's no money behind it. There's a you know, $20 cover charge to go see a comedian or there's, you know, you can download comedy on the Internet. But most people are addicted to the negative. Mm-hmm. We're conditioned that way. We're conditioned to see accidents. We're conditioned to see uh, death and destruction. You know, I always, I always say that, you know, it's very funny because a lot of times I can't do radio shows. They'll say, oh, the comedians, were afraid of them. They'll say something bad because of the kids. It's always, the, oh, the kids, we don't affect the kids. Really? My child, if he tuned in the news for five minutes, he would see beheadings, molestation, pedophilia, rape, incest, destruction, mayhem, murder, and all that. That's what he'll see on television in five minutes. Okay? Yeah. But do you really think my a kid's going to be on top of a tower with a rifle one day destroyed by Craig Shoemaker? <laughs> Craig Shoemaker said F on the Tonight Show. He's destroyed. <laughs> Destroyed me! F you all! Really? I mean, you think about that. How strange this is. How accepting we are if somebody has money behind it. My kids have to watch commercials about vaginal warts. Oh, my God. And I have to explain it. Oh, no. So you sit there with your... Remember when we bonded as kids, you would go, Hey, you know... I, this is a great show and we're having fun watching this and you my mom would explain like how Mary Tyler Moore was single and why you know what I mean or whatever it was that was his, that was the extent of the conversation but now you're you just watch a commercial hey daddy uh, Viagra how come they're in different tubs <laughs> <laughs> what do they do in the different tubs maybe they should be in the same tub he wouldn't have a Viagra problem I mean this, these are the discussions I'm having with with children and you know we don't we don't want to have those those talks but we like to talk about something that makes them laugh I took my son to Vegas this past weekend 10 year old son and we had an absolute blast took my comedy shows and magic shows david copperfield brought us on stage which is really cool you know he didn't make my um, alimony payments disappear <laughs> i would have loved that if he did something with that or, or <laughs> i forgot to tell you all of my all of my shows um, that i'm doing for the rest of the year are benefit shows in comedy wow. and all proceeds go to my ex-wife oh. as i let you know <laughs> arrow if, if you guys could have seen the look on his face oh that's so sweet of you you're doing a charity and then i just got you a zinger on that comedy <laughs> right, speaking of that, you want to talk about my book I got my book you've got to hit the other radio show but can you come back and talk about the book sure well yeah. uh, oh uh, can we absolutely because I want to talk about this book because on iHeartRadio I've got another channel called View from the Writing Instrument which is all about <gasps> authors oh my god so you got to come back for that we'll do alright man thank you bro it's always a pleasure buddy. <laughs> you got it if you could return don't let it burn don't let it fade I'm sure I'm I gotta tell you, I like the remix of Linger. It really takes me deeper into the lyrics, the way that you've brought the orchestration into this. Yes, it's, it's nice, isn't it? 
is it part of the process of a song? They always say that a song is always continuous. It's never over. Is that what you went through? Or is it like, no, we, we've kind of just grown up in the industry now. Um, I think that we wanted to breathe some new life into the songs and it was like coming up to the 25th anniversary of the band and we, we thought it would be nice to do something special for the fans. So um, the idea of the quartet came when myself and Noel were doing a kind of a cameo on The Bachelorette. We were playing together and we were doing Linger and we thought it sounded really nice. So we said, uh, oh, you know, we should probably do an album like this for the fans, you know. That is so awesome because I was on the air when Linger first appeared on on the radio and I remember the record company sending us a box of cranberries to go out with listeners and, and to do whatever we could to help push you guys forward to them. Yes. Because you guys were very magical when it came to uh, promoting the music but when you first appeared on the music scene. Did you get to be a part of that or was that 100% the label's idea? No, like we always just kind of did our own thing and um, we were very lucky with the guy that had signed us. Um... He really believed in what we, we were doing and left us to our own devices. Um, and because of that, I think that's where we kind of touched a lot of people is that our music was genuine. It was, you know, this is what we're into, um, kind of take it or leave it in many ways. And because of that, there was no kind of, you know, it wasn't a big act or it was, it was a real thing. And that's something that we've always tried to keep going. The Cranberries came out. It was right there as MTV was starting to kind of go away. But here came this thing called the Internet. You guys got to play on both stages and had success with both. Yeah, we've been very lucky like that. I think we were we were probably, you know, one of the last kind of bigger acts that actually sold albums, like physical albums, you know, because soon after that, that, that whole kind of side of the industry started to die away. Well, even even with this new mix of Linger, what, what I love about it is that because people have got their smartphones and their iPods and stuff, and it's become more of a one-on-one relationship and one person listening, that's what this song does. I mean, it lets you step inside. Yes, it's got a nice intimacy to it. First of all, I got to tell you the reason why I like why. The opening questions were just totally drew me into the picture. Somewhere in between. Is this something that you were living when you were sitting before you put that down on paper? Yes, I'd written it shortly after my father passed away, probably a year and a half after he died. So having gone through that, that's such a difficult thing to go through in your life, you know. And I, I feel that... I feel that when people die, they don't actually leave straight away. I feel that they're around still for a while or that they're kind of in between. They don't really cross over. It takes a while to cross over to the other side, wherever they're going, you know, to the other dimension. had a lot of weird coincidences happening all the time after he died. Stuff that made me feel like he was, you know, trying to touch base with me still, you know. And that's what I've always loved about your music. It's so authentic. It's not like you're sitting down to read a Tiger Beat or a Teen Beat magazine. You're actually living life and sharing your journey. Is that difficult as songwriters to do that? Well, it's very therapeutic, you know, and um, I've always done it that way. You know, I've always written about, like, personal experiences or things that, uh, you know, we need to reflect on something that I've gone through or I'm going through or my own 
and thoughts as regards to myself, you know, or how I feel. And so, I mean, I've been doing it so long that it's not something new or anything like that. It's just the way it's been, you know, and I think a lot of musicians are like that, you know. And when you say that you've done it so long, and yet there are so many people, I feel like, that are still trying to copy what you guys created because this new indie world that we've gone into because of SoundCloud and iTunes and everything, I, I, I can hear your influence on, on a lot of that music. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's um, imitation is a form of flattery, so that's quite flattering to hear, you know. No, how was it that you guys connected to the Americans? It wasn't because it was a pop hit. What was it that you think really kind of drew us closer to you? Um, you know, I, I don't think anything else sounded like this at the time. You know, we were, especially at home, we were kind of considered an indie band. Um, and then when we had the kind of mainstream success over here, uh, it, it took us by surprise more than anybody else, I think. We didn't expect that. Um, and, uh, you know, if you could really figure out what it was that clicked, you could probably sell it to people, you know, and go, here, this is the formula. It's just one of those things. We, you know, I, I hope that it was just that we, we wrote good songs and, and that's what people were drawn to. What, what was so fascinating about your journey is that you were able to step up there and play next to Madonna, play next to Michael Jackson, and stand out just as much as they were. Yeah, it's, it's just one of those kind of things that when you start out in a band, um, you know, you kind of don't think further than let's just do a local gig or, you know, we, we write these songs because we like them. Um, and then it just seems like all of a sudden you're like that. You're playing these massive arenas and you're setting out tours and, you know, you've got, you're setting all these records and everything. Um, it, you do sometimes, you kind of have to pay yourself to, to see is this actually really happening. Speaking of those arenas, you can't put an album out like this on your 25th anniversary and not want to come out here and, and communicate with us through music. Are you going to do that? Yeah, we've got a. Uh, we, we're through, we're going to be through Europe uh, for the summer, and then I think it's kind of mid-September they're talking about um, for us to start touring over here. Um, and I think in the next few days they're probably going to have those dates up. And you know, speaking of that number 25, that happens to be that one magical number when it comes to being inducted into the Hall of Fame. Does that does that cross your mind at all, or is it, ah, that's one of those crazy American things? Um, no, I never really... About I haven't it. really thought about it. No. See, I only, I, it's only because I heard Pearl Jammer being inducted, I think, this year. Yeah. Um, that is kind of, I, I've heard a lot more about it in the last kind of couple of months, more so than, than before that. We'll go, though. If, yeah. If they want us to. We're open to what? You know what it's like when it comes to putting these albums together and you're trying new things. Did it inspire you to create a, another level of play to where you can get back in the game full time again, or is is this just a moment that we're documenting? No, I think we both like we've spoken about it, and we we've always found that we we write better and quicker when we're on tour, and with this tour coming up, like we'd like to see how that kind of moves on from there. Well, for the two of you, I mean, when you're on tour, if you're being creative, look at today's technology nowadays. I mean, you could have a studio right there on the bus. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty incredible now that when we did our first albums, you know, there was so much planning that went into booking studios and getting all the gear in and everything. And, and these days, you know, you can kind of do so much stuff kind of at home. Do you feel like the two of you that you're in better control of, of your music journey right now rather than, oh, we got to get this label, oh, we got to get this, we got to get that? Um, it seems uh, like a lot easier now because it was very hectic when we were young, you know. It was like um, 
a roller coaster ride, you know, because we became so famous so quickly and we were very young. But now it feels a lot calmer, you know, and it's less hectic. We've got less to prove as well. You know, when you're starting out, you're kind of, you're really, really hungry for it. So we kind of agreed to everything people would ask us to do. We were like, yeah, we'll do that. And we worked and worked until we got burnt out. So we, you know, you learn from that as well, not to do it again. It, it's so funny how, uh, once again, crazy Americans love to label music and stuff. They they would call it Celtic. They would call it Irish. Did you guys really try to fit into a label, or was it you're just being the cranberries? Yeah, I think uh, the label that we mostly fell into was alternative rock. Yes. Yeah, and. Yeah. Uh, I thought that sounded cool. It was that time when, when alternative rock was starting to move in and they needed an artist like yourself to really cross that line to get people to come to them as well. I think looking back at it now, you can see that we did kind of cross over from that kind of, you know, indie-ish type of scene into more mainstream. But it was just, you know, we were just doing what we what we do. It's kind of, it wasn't the plan or anything. I'm good, Arrow. How about you? Fantastic. You got those golf clubs in your hand? You ready to play some golf right now? Uh, Arrow, I was just swinging a weighted club. You caught me. I'm busted. <laughs> hey, you got to tell me about Roaring Back. I mean, because you you have got a storyline here that all of us, you know, we, we can watch 30 for 30 all we want, but your book takes us into a really in-depth story. Well, thanks. Uh, yeah, um, this is my second Tiger book, so I've been studying this guy for, for quite a while. You know, we all have been in a way. If you watch golf, you become kind of an expert in uh, Tiger's mannerisms and and his successes, really, uh, on the golf course. Um, off it, he, it's been up and down. He, he's always been that Superman, but at the same time, he's always been that tabloid hero to a lot of us. Uh, that's true. Well, uh, tabloid hero and tabloid villain. Um, yeah. It was 10 years ago, almost precisely, that Tiger got in a bit of a tiff. Oh, well, it's let's just say what it is. A, a, a violent argument with his wife when she discovered... Um, who was uh, texting him and and why um and that was the beginning of uh, a, a very severe um slump or downfall for for tiger uh, to his credit though um despite becoming a laughing stock the guy came back pretty completely it's a, an amazing comeback well and, and people are still talking about it you know i mean outside of the ruiz fight from last week i mean it was the greatest sports story that we had heard was the fact that tiger woods won uh, yeah um, um moments within seconds really after uh, tiger hold the winning putt at augusta uh in april jim nance proclaimed it the greatest sports comeback ever uh, and that was part of uh, what spurred me to write this book or at least to um, a, a, a major part of its content is um, examining Nance's uh, comment there and um, trying to weigh Tiger's um, uh, redemption story with uh, with some others uh, I, I, I think what your listeners will have to read the book to um, and figure it out for themselves. But I, I will say this, Tiger's comeback has such a different flavor from any I've ever uh, read about or heard about or written about. Tiger, you'll recall, he was a staple of the late night comedian's uh, monologues in the in his bad old days. Um, uh, he was a laughingstock who came back from uh, from that 
that's a substantial uh, story. Well, I'll tell you the one part of Tiger Woods that we didn't hear was what it was doing to his mind, body, and soul, because how can somebody take such a beating in the headlines as well as late night like he did and still remain positive? Where, where did he go? Was it meditation? What, what do you know from that side of the picture? Part of it, a big part of it, I think, is this. Um, one of his instructors, Hank Haney, said that the practice tee was Tiger's church. That was his sanctuary. And for a, a golfer, quite a good sanctuary. He could uh, always has been able to immerse himself in practice. He, he loves the repetition. He loves the solitude, I'm convinced. Uh, and uh, uh, gosh, his dedication to the uh, to practicing and working out. Those two uh, things, uh, simply put, are uh, very key to what uh, has allowed Tiger to uh, become a successful golfer again at age 43. He'll be 44 in a week or so. So you've been around and you continue to be around Tiger as much as you do. So at age 44, uh, honestly, where do you see Tiger is in his redemptive story at this point moving forward? The, uh, the the medical types I've spoken with, um, their predictions for Tiger are dire. That he had not long ago, uh, before th- this uh, big comeback, spinal fusion surgery, and it's almost um, inevitable. In fact, it is inevitable that there'll be arthritis in that area and decreased uh, flexibility. Uh, Tiger is beating that. Um, with his uh, absolute dedication to the to the workout and and rehab, but that's not going to last forever. Tiger is not immune to uh, to aging and the consequences of this um, major surgery. What what do you think hurt worse to Tiger when he, when his back was aching when he was out there playing the game, or the fact that we wouldn't get off his back? <laughs> oh, that's well said. Uh, Tiger, for those of us in the media, especially the print media, he's always been a frustrating guy. Um, More than one person has said that the only time he's boring is when his lips are moving. Oh, God. He's he's just been a cliche machine. Uh, That was training, really, from uh, his father, Earl Woods, um, who considered himself a master media manipulator. His lesson to Tiger was withhold um, don't say anything, don't reveal too much, um, and, and try to use us, uh, to, um, to advantage. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's, he doesn't fill up our pens. We've had to, um, uh, kind of do a write around with Tiger for, for all these years. So basically you, you seriously had to use what, what you saw as a storyteller rather than what you heard. That's a, a lot of it. Yes, of course. Um, in my first book about Tiger called uh, Chasing Tiger, uh, the promised uh, com- um, cooperation from the, the Woods camp uh, disappeared just as I got the deal. Uh, it was given and then it was taken away. So here I am having to write 270 pages uh, about a, a guy who suddenly won't talk to me or will only talk to me in a group of eight uh, or 10 or 12 or whoever, however many by an 18th green. And the other guys on deadline want to know what Tiger hit on the 14th tee or what he thought of the greens. And I want to ask him about the role of Buddhism in his life. Um, you know, you can't do that. It's just, um, uh, it was just 
frustrating. Now, you can't bring that up in a subject not and make me not want to talk about it because, you know, that to me, that says that he did go to a place inside his head before he swung at that ball. Because, I mean, if, if he truly believing in, in Buddhism, that's living in the presence. That's being mindful of the now. And yet I'm skeptical about Tiger and Buddhism. Um, it only came up um, in that press conference and in 2010, uh, after he'd done his three months in sex addiction clinic, um, or just before it, and when he said that how he, Buddhism, the Buddhism of his mother, was going to help him recover his balance after the uh, the scandal broke. But I haven't, you haven't heard a, a word about it since he's he's visited Thailand uh, recently, where his mother is from. Not a single report of him visiting a temple. I've never heard of him uh, and Buddhism in the same sentence or paragraph uh, since that that press conference. I'm skeptical. One thing that's really uh, I'm curious about, he visited Thailand, and Thailand is really known for its exotic... uh you know, sex escapades. So um, do, do you think, uh, you know, was Tiger really tempted or did he indulge in any of these uh, sexual experiences in Thailand? I doubt it. I don't think so. His most recent trip was with uh, uh, the, the kids and the current girlfriend. Uh, Tiger's, the center uh, of ground zero for Tiger's misbehavior was Las Vegas. He had um, uh, friends named Barkley and Michael Jordan who weren't exactly they're 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 not good guys in that sense they're not they weren't um um i don't know i i I just think they were bad influences tiger had the perfect cover though his rehab specialist was in vegas and he had his own jet and a titanium credit card he had good reason to go to uh to uh vegas all the time and um he was up to no good quite often. The book we're talking about is Roaring Back. You know, I have been in more conversations with the everyday average person that, yeah, Tiger Woods, you know, he, he made a lot of mistakes, but I've had more people tell me, get off his back. He's only human. Do you see that side? Well, I do. Uh, the, the, I, I feel sorry for, me, for him in a sense. Um, I, don't, I don't care about the, the money. We can put that aside. That doesn't equal happiness. Basically, uh, this man is an introvert who, since age 14 or so, has absolutely owned a spotlight. He could, cannot have a, a restaurant meal in, in peace. He can't go anywhere or do anything without um, drawing a crowd. Uh, it, it's, it must have been, it must still be, to some degree, a, a difficult life to live for this guy. What are you going to do, Curtis, when, when you get that phone call in 10 or 15 years, like a lot of these rock stars, you know, reach out to, to their favorite writers, and, and it's going to be it's going to be Tiger, and he's going to say, hey, Curtis, I, I need a three-day interview with you. What, what are you going to do? Because, <laughs> because you write these books about him, and, and I know he's got to be reading them. I think I'll have a heart attack. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's uh, funny, uh, Tiger. Um, when as soon as this book, uh, Roaring Back, was announced, uh, virtually within days, Tiger uh, announced that he was going to be producing his second or third uh, autobiography. Now, because he because he's just fed up with the incomplete and uh, uninformed uh, books being written about him, that of course he won't cooperate with. 
so uh, we'll see. I, I think self-analysis is not uh, uh, Tiger's strong suit, but but we'll see. What it would be amazing if he comes clean about uh, his his bad old days. Um, his good his good days are pretty public, but the behind the scenes Tiger is, uh, or what he thinks of himself. I hope he can uh, he can tell us. The book we're talking about is Roaring Back. Let's talk about the golf world. When when Tiger was going through his strange, strong storms, they they didn't need that image or that that blemish on on the golfing world. Did they really want him to get strong again? Oh, I, oh yes, I think so. Tiger moves the, the needle like nobody since uh, probably Arnold Palmer. Uh, yes, uh, there would be a. a, a virtual title tidal wave of support for tiger from other players from the industry uh generally although uh some of his uh sponsors uh bailed on him uh a few key ones that especially the key one nike did not they uh, kind of moved tiger commercials to the background for a while but um, now he's recovered and stronger than ever with Nike. In, inside your heart and inside, you know, your dreams for Tiger and stuff like that, do you think he'll pass Jack? No, I don't. I, I, I think the, the medical part is, is too daunting. I think he can win again, however, at Augusta National. It's virtually a home golf course for him. He's had, I, I think I'm accurate, I counted the number of competitive rounds he's had there at 87, which is um, a lot. He uh, The course knowledge... Uh, that he has there is considerable and it's a considerable advantage. I think even with a diminished golf swing, he can think his way around there and uh, possibly win again. Well, man, I'm telling you, you are affecting the future generation. You're fulfilling them and you're also truth filling them as well with, with the stories that you write about Tiger Woods, because, you know, a couple of generations from now, people are still going to be reading your books. Well, that's very nice of you to say. I, I, I really have the, um, the, the reader in mind when I, I write and not my subject, um, unless Tiger would announce that he was going to buy 25 or 30,000 books, then I'll write, <laughs> write them for him. <laughs> hey, you know, one of the things that's happening a lot lately, and that is a lot of sports writers and writers in general are getting their own podcasts. Are you putting any energy into that? No, not yet. I'm such an uh, such an oldster. I, I, somebody always has to lead me by the hand to do anything new. Um, uh, I fortunately I have two uh, Gen X um, sons who can help me along. But um, no, I'm not podcasting. I'm happy to be a, a guest on yours, though. Thank you. I appreciate that. What does Tiger's life look like after golf? You know, he started a uh, golf course design company. I, I think he could be, he could get serious with that. I don't see him doing any announcing. Uh, I, I think he's too stiff for that. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know how analytical he could be. Uh, plus the money wouldn't, wouldn't attract him. I'd like to see, uh, maybe he could start paying attention to those very gaudy and over-the-top predictions his father had for him in which um, Earl predicted uh, that, that Tiger would bring the races and the nations together, uh, that he would be an international ambassador of some sort. Maybe Tiger could um, 
step up his game uh, in that area. But heck, it's, that's a lot to ask, isn't it? Just as, just as Tiger always hated to be the, the, the representative of his race, he didn't really think of himself as black in the way most people think, uh, that is most white Americans think uh, the, the black experience is. That's, that hasn't been Tiger. He's always been that guy in the red shirt to how many millions of people? He's uh, amazing that way, a magnetic figure uh, still. It's incredible. He's fun to write about uh, uh, because I I don't think I've answered every question about him. I have my observations based on experience, but he is... um, he is an interesting cat, that's for sure. Well, you sure make him interesting. Please come back to this show anytime in the future, dude. You just asked me. Uh, you, the questions are good. I really appreciate uh, it, and I'd be happy to. Excellent. You'd be brilliant today, okay? Oh, <laughs> that's nice of you to say. Thanks.